All right, good morning again. Um, if you came in late, we have a kind of a different setup today. Over the next seven weeks, we'll be taking communion together, but we're also going to be doing it in a different formation than we usually do. Instead of passing it out, we're going to be coming forward just as a way to act out um, being a follower of Christ, uh, pursuing Him. Uh, so we'll do that after, after the service is over. I also wanted to remind you about the Guatemala trip coming up here in March. March is upon us, and we're uh, taking a group to... Guatemala over spring break, and so we'd ask you to give as you are able to that project, and there are specific envelopes marked by the giving box in the back there, so ask you to remember that. If you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians. We're going to finish up our Galatians study today, so this is bittersweet. I'm, I'm sad. I've, I've grown very uh, attached to Galatians over the last several weeks, um, but this will be the last week in Galatians, and then next week we'll be, begin studying Nehemiah together. Uh, As I said last week, we're looking at some uh, expansion and building options. As we started praying and thinking about that last year, I started thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah, these books that are really about rebuilding. Uh, And so we're going to be studying that together over the spring semester. Um, So this week, we'll continue our Centered series in Galatians. We'll be in Galatians chapter 6, and that's on page 975. If you've got a Bible nearby, a black Bible, it'll be on page 975, and those black Bibles um, will be in verses 11 through 18 today. We've been reminded week after week in Galatians that we should center ourselves on Jesus and what he's done instead of ourselves. And really the two directions that that goes for us as people is we generally go down the track either of following our impulses, what feels good in the moment, that's one way we try to save ourselves, or we go down the direction of religion. We try to impress people by keeping external rules. Um, And Paul, again and again, has challenged both of those forms of self-salvation and challenged us that only Jesus can really save us, only Jesus can make us whole. This final week, we're calling it cross-centered. He brings us back to the cross once again, the centrality of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection as our substitute. Um, We all drift towards these different ways of uh, self-salvation, and If you notice the first verse we're going to read, this is a way that Paul is saying, pay attention, okay? So Paul is saying, wake up, pay attention, this is serious. So if you'll read with me, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God." From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let me pray for us. We'll ask God to teach us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are enough, and and Lord, you recognize our our drift. You see how we, we drift towards trying to save ourselves in the moment with what feels good, or trying to save ourselves by uh, keeping rituals or externals or rules or, or marking ourselves somehow on the outside. Um, we confess 
that we often run to many other gods, but you are the only true Savior, and so we ask that you would teach us uh, how to trust you this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is starting off here saying, pay attention. Verse 11, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, uh, this, most scholars believe what he's saying is he's now grabbed the pen from his secretary and he's writing the final verses. And he's writing them in big letters. I've said before, some people think he had an eye problem because when Jesus first met Paul, he blinded him. Uh, and Paul says earlier in Galatians that they were going to show their love to him. He said, you would have torn out your eyes and given me your own eyes if you uh, could have. Um, and so there's this, this eye thing we see in Paul. So maybe it's, maybe it's because he can't uh, write small because he's got an eye problem. Whatever it is, it's common for Paul to finish his letters. We see this in other letters of Paul where he says, this is me, Paul, marking in the way you can recognize my handwriting, kind of like a final, a final note. Any of you have ever gotten a form letter from someone you love and then they'll add a personal note to it, right? To kind of, they're communicating, hey, you're not just a robot, you know, I'm not just sending this to a million people, but I remember you specifically, and so people will often add personal notes to form letters that are sent out to many people. And then, of course, in marketing, people try to rip that off by faking the personal note, you know, but anyway, that's another story. Here, Paul is saying, pay attention. I'm, I'm writing this with my own hand. These are my final words to you. Pay attention. Have you ever been in a situation where you're with someone you love or you're with someone who you wish at least was listening? And you have this desperate feeling of, why, why won't you listen, right? I wish I could get this person to pay attention. As human beings, we all have different ways of doing that. Some of us are more subtle. Some of us are more demanding, right? Some of us will just try to to woo people to pay attention to us. Others will just say, hey, pay attention to me, right? Listen. I remember when my kids were younger, we'd go to the swimming pool. I don't know if this happens to you if you're, if you're uh, parents, but it seems like more than any other place in the universe, my children needed me to pay attention to them in the pool. Have y'all ever noticed that? Or can you remember that when you were a kid? Watch, watch, watch. Look at this, look at this, look at this. It's, it was always so funny to me. They're going off the diving board. They're jumping in the water. They're doing something Watch, pay attention, look, daddy, daddy, look, look, pay attention, pay attention. Paul is trying to grab our attention here, saying this is really important. We all drift from the cross, pay attention, don't drift from the cross. It's our only hope. The first thing that I think Paul's unpacking for us is why the cross is a problem. Why, why do we not want the cross? What is it about us that resists the cross? And I don't think Paul gives an, ex an exhaustive list here of everything that every person would use as a reason to not trust in what Jesus did through the cross. But he gives us some reasons here. He shows us that people resist the cross. If you look again at verses 12 and 13, he says, it is, I'm going to read it from this version here, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So I'd summarize that with two reasons that they avoid the cross. First of all, wanting to avoid persecution from others. You might call that peer pressure. Maybe that's too weak of a word, but trying to avoid being persecuted by others, right? So others might persecute so I'm going to avoid that cross thing, and I'm going to go with something that's culturally more 
acceptable than the cross. Have you ever found yourself in that position as a follower of Christ where you thought, oh, this makes so much sense and Jesus is so good and this whole cross thing, I get it. I'm attracted to who Jesus is and him giving himself for me, but then you find yourself in a situation where the social pressure and what's normal in our culture makes you think, oh, there's, there's something wrong with that. It doesn't seem right now because this person thinks it's ridiculous. Well, Paul says that's, that's a reason to avoid the cross is to avoid persecution. And then I think a second reason is wanting to boast in our own efforts. That's another reason we avoid the cross. So one's kind of a negative, right? I don't, I don't want the negative pressure. Other people think it's ridiculous, or in some countries, I might get killed for it. It's that ridiculous. Or the flip side, the, the positive reason is I want to I boast in myself. I, I want my flesh to be the thing I can brag about. Let, let's look at it again. Verse 12, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. He's saying that's the reason. They want to show something in the flesh. They want to have something to, to brag about, to show to other people. Those who would make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They don't want to be persecuted. Others are telling them, you can't be one of us if you go for this Jesus stuff, if you follow Jesus. Or, to put it more specifically, in the Jewish context, if you give up the boundary markers of what it means tribally to be a Jew, you're no longer one of us. Jesus is not enough. Being a Jew is what's more important. Or to say it in today's language, whatever group you belong to, Whatever tribe you draw your identity from, it's saying Jesus is not enough, but my professional standards are what make me approved by God. Or Jesus is not enough, but what my family thinks of me, that's what's going to win the day. Or Jesus is not enough, but what my girlfriend or my boyfriend wants. Jesus is not enough, but my own standards and desires, that's what's going to save me. You see how there are these, these outside tribal markers that we believe will win us salvation instead of Jesus. When we pick those instead of Jesus, we're boasting in our flesh and we're avoiding the persecution that we think is going to come. Right? If you're a single and you're struggling to remain sexually pure, it seems like persecution. It's painful. But Jesus says, I'm enough. I'm enough. If you're a business owner and you're struggling to have a business that honors God in, in all of your dealings, you're going to be tempted to avoid persecution, avoid the pain and cut corners, but Jesus is saying, I'm enough. I'm enough. You don't have to worry about that persecution. Trust me. Trust me. He's not saying the persecution won't come. He's saying it's worth it, and you can trust him. You're going to make it. You'll make it through the persecution. He's going to come back to that in the end. He's not guaranteeing that persecution won't happen. He's saying that he's going to be with you, and it's going to be worth it. It's going to be better to walk with Jesus than to worry about that persecution. So the two reasons are we're trying to avoid persecution. We're trying to avoid pain in our life or we want to boast in our own flesh. And what's fascinating here is he says, and they're not even really keeping the law, right? To, to end all of that, practically, they're not even really keeping the law. So in the end, it just becomes a big mask. I, I remember when my son was about five, he had this Hulk mask and these giant Hulk fists. It was like these giant, it looked very realistic. It was like foam that you could put your hand in and you could smash things. And I think it would say Hulk smash. I don't know if you remember. It said something pretty impressive and scary, right? It had like a little voice inside of it. Um, I have a picture here. I found a kid online. This isn't my own son, but this is a kid that has kind of the same thing. 
So here you got like a little five-year-old with these giant fists and the scary Hulk mask. Um, now as an adult, do you think I was really scared of my son when he put on the mask? Yes? Well, <laughs> for those of you that have sons, yes. Yes, I was scared. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really that scared of him, okay? I wasn't really that scared. Now he had a sister that was a few years younger. She was two when he was five. She would scream hysterically. She would scream her head off. No, I don't want to see Naughty Hulk, right? Like, Naughty Hulk scares me. She would just scream like a maniac. And we had to basically get him to take all of his Hulk toys. He had other stuff too, like a little Hulk action figure. All of them had to be hidden in his closet. We wouldn't let him leave them out in his room because she'd like walk in the room and just, just start screaming, right? <laughs> and so uh, these masks that we wear, sorry, now I've got to bring it back full circle. These masks that we wear, they fool some people, but they don't fool everybody, right? We all wear these masks, right? Like if you're, if you're pursuing pleasure, if you're, pursu- if you're just following your desires and you're saying, I don't care what God's rules are, throw out the Ten Commandments, I must follow my desires, it's my identity, it's going to make me feel good, it feels good in the moment. In a sense, that's a mask. You're saying, this is ultimate happiness, because you know if you've gone down that route, if you've gone down that road, it's not really saving you, is it? It's not everything you thought it would be. Or it's never enough. You always need more. So in the end, it's a mask. It's, it's fake. It's not real. It's just a taste of salvation. It's a, it's a pale reflection of the ultimate pleasure of knowing God in eternity. The same thing for religious works. If we're just if we're trying to act religious, if we're trying to go through the motions, if we're trying to do religious busyness as a way to be saved, Paul's saying, these guys are saying you have to do these external markers of the Jewish tradition to be saved, but they're not even keeping the law themselves. And what he's saying here is they're not actually righteous. They're not actually holy. They're not upholding the ultimate standards of the law. The core of the law is love God and love other people. The the ceremonial markers, all the symbols of the law, those were secondary. Those were arrows and signs to point us to a holy God, but those aren't what made us holy. So Paul is saying those things are secondary. Those shadows have now been fulfilled in Christ. Those people that are casting all their their bets and cashing all their chips in and, and trusting in the external markers, they don't have the actual righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. That's, that's the only thing that really counts. That's the only thing that can really help us. My question for you, just application, what are those marks? What are those masks that you run to? Throughout Galatians, we've seen it's, it's generally either trusting pleasure or trusting an external religion. Is one of those more attractive than the other for you? Are there kind of uh, things that you feel like I've got to go through because other people are seeing and they're watching, so I've got to do this and then I'll be a part of the trial? Are there things like that that attract you in religion? Or are you falling for the my heart knows best and I'm just going to follow what feels good in the moment and that's going to save me? And you're pursuing pleasure? Realize those things aren't going to save you. That's a boasting in the flesh. That's a boasting in the flesh and an avoiding the pain of persecution. Only Christ will save you. And I don't, I don't say these things to condemn you. I say these things to drive you to Jesus who loves you. When we break the law, it brings destruction and separation from God. But the rest of the story is that God comes after us in Jesus through the cross. 
So don't resist the cross. The cross is a problem to us because we don't think it's going to work. But Jesus says, I love you. It's, it's going to work. How does the cross turn us inside out? Verse 14 and 15, he addresses this. How does the cross actually work? What, what does that process look like? Look at verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says this, there's this process by which the world's dead to me and I'm dead to the world. And that's through the cross, through the means of, of the cross. This is how the cross works. world's dead to me, I'm dead to the world. Verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. Throughout the Bible, there are these visions of the future where God is remaking everything. Those of us that trust Jesus are stepping into that world now. Now, I'm not going to lie and say the world has ended and everything's perfect and there's no more disease or pain, right? We still live in that, but there's a sense in which we're stepping into heaven now by trusting in Jesus. We're tasting and we're enjoying that new creation now through Christ. We're participating in this heavenly worship that we read about in Revelation that blows our mind that doesn't make sense. As we gather as believers to worship Him, we participate in it, but as we trust day by day, offering our bodies as living sacrifices in worship, we're participating in the perfection and the goodness and the new creation. The process is the world is dying to us and we're dying to the world. I think it's like a focusing issue really for us. It's a changing of our of our attention, it's a changing of our focus, it's a changing of, of what we value and treasure and look at. I have a picture here of a horse with blinders on. Uh, any of you ever raced horses? None of you, okay. All right, so I can talk about this like I know about it. Donald has. Um, what, the way I understand it is horses can be a little skittish. Any of you ever ridden a horse? You, then you know horses are jumpy, right? You have to be real careful around the horse. You don't just walk up and you know, kick the horse in the back, right? Because uh, he'll kick you. So you have to be real careful about him. But, and one of the things that they notice is if, if they help focus the horse, then he's less jumpy, right? And he can focus on what's ahead of him. And so I'm going to use this as a metaphor for what Jesus is doing for us in the cross. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's saying, the world is not going to save you. But the world is dead to you now. And you're dead to the world. You're a part of this new creation. You're now something, you're, you're now part of something so much better than now that the now is, is fading away, right? The things of earth grow strangely dim. The irony is that that makes us actually way more valuable to this earth, right? As, as this earth loses its grip on you, you're actually going to be better at your job. As this world fades, you're actually going to be able to love people better, right? So before, if you were just captivated by what people thought of you, you couldn't actually love people. But now, as, as the importance of that dies, and you are captured by God's love for you, you're actually free to love people. You're free to say yes, you're free to say no, and you can think about what's the best for this person in the moment. Because I know I'm loved, and I don't need to get something out of them. I have all that I need supplied for me in Jesus. So now the world has died to you, and you've died to the world because you're taken care of in Christ. So now you have a change of focus, a change of affection, a change of direction. You're, you're focused on Jesus and all that he's done for you. The more we fall more deeply in love with Jesus, that turns our heart inside out, that changes our 
affections. We now have uh, in, inside-out drives instead of outside-in drives. Whereas before, we were driven from the outside by what people could do for us, by what the world could provide for us, by what might hurt, what might not hurt. Now we're driven from the heart because God loves us. So we have this inside-out motivation. We're being renewed day by day. We are being made new. Some of you have glasses, right? I can see them on your face right now. Your glasses help you see things, right? They help you to focus. They help you to see what you want to see. And what Paul is saying is that the gospel helps us to see what's real, what's true, how good God really is. We live in this world of pain and things aren't there yet, but the gospel helps us to see how good Jesus really is. It it flips us inside out. It changes our affections. It changes our focus. It helps us to love what's truly good. The gospel helps us to see how good God really is. Right? We used to hate him and fear him, and we used to love our rule keeping. We used to love our flesh. We used to love our impulses. Now we see how good God really is. So it's flipped our desires inside out, so we actually desire him. So that doesn't mean we perfectly keep the Ten Commandments now and never make mistakes. What it means is that we trust him and we want to. And so the struggle of sanctification, the struggle of a life following Jesus is trying to do what's right out of love. I actually want to do what's right. It's not like I'm miraculously transformed and I just never want to do anything wrong anymore. I'm, I'm relearning, but it's from the inside out. I'm not trying to fix the outside to get God to love me. I now know on the inside he loves me. And so because he loves me, he's with me and he's helping me fix what's broken what's haywire in my life. So the life of following Jesus is really following him. We're going to challenge you again and again to actually try to do what he says is right, to actually try to obey the Ten Commandments because Jesus loves you, not because you're trying to win his affection. He already has shown his affection to you through the cross, and so the cross turns us inside out. The last thing he talks about is where the cross takes us. Where the cross takes us. I would summarize this kind of in two categories that he's bouncing off of here. Um, this is a great passage, just these last uh, 11 through 18. I, I could have done like 17 different sermons on, on this text. This is really hard because what Paul is doing is he's kind of weaving together all the mega themes of the Bible, all in one place here, right? So he's throwing out this word and that word, and they're just huge words that connect with all kinds of stuff in the rest of the Scripture. Um, so I just want to focus here. What is, where does the cross take us? I think it brings two things. It brings us family, and it brings us mission. Uh, it, it makes us a part of the people of God, and it gives us a job to do. And we've talked about this before. There's, there's two sides of being a, a son or a daughter of your parents. One side of that is, should be, this is what it should look like, one side of that is affection and belonging. The other side of that is purpose, right? Like, and sometimes God blesses, this is one of the blessings of having two parents. You know, most of us didn't have two parents, but the blessing of having two parents is oftentimes one of us does one better than the other, right? One parent is belonging parent, and the other parent is purpose and mission parent. And God often gives us that kind of balance through our parents. And God gives us both in the gospel. Through the cross, he gives us both belonging, being a part of the family of God, and mission, purpose in life. Let's read verse 16, 17, and 18. And we'll wrap up here. And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The the rule of the cross. Trusting Jesus instead of trusting my flesh. That's the rule. So for all who walk by this rule, peace 
and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now, now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So first of all, he says, everybody who walks by this rule, they're in. They're in. What's the rule? The rule is don't trust your flesh. Whether the temptation of your flesh is to save yourself through religion or to save yourself through following your impulses, don't trust your flesh, trust Jesus. That's the rule. The rule is the gospel. What's fascinating is this word rule has been taken on by the early church and we see this kind of slight veering off course where the rule of faith becomes language of the traditions of the bishops. And I would say that's dangerous. There's definitely overlap there where the rule can be used to talk about traditions, right? We do it this way, we don't do it that way. It can be used that way, but in context here, Paul is saying the rule of faith is the gospel. It's everything he's been fighting for. It's Jesus is enough. That's the rule. That's the rule. That's the boundary markers. And he says, for all of those people, peace and mercy be upon them. Peace is reconciliation, right? There's no longer fighting, but now there's togetherness and things are the way they're supposed to be. Mercy is uh, having your sins forgiven, being shown love that you didn't deserve. We have that now through the cross. And he says, and upon the Israel of God. This is confusing, and what I would just throw out there is that commentators disagree on the Israel of God comment, but because of the foundation that Paul's already laid in Galatians, we, I believe, have to understand this as we, by this rule, are a part of God's people. Now, we, as a church, we kind of stand in the middle of this, of this debate, right? There's this debate that says um, the church can't be Israel. It just can't be because that doesn't make sense. Or there's this other side that says Israel's gone, the church is Israel, it's the same thing. So the, kind of the extremes uh, are um, you can't mix them at all or they're, they're totally combined. And I would say really what we see here is we are God's people. Romans 11, I think, states this most clearly. What Romans 11 says is that God starts with this stump, it's Israel, and people are grafted into that stump by faith. And people that don't believe are broken off. And so God's taking a tree that's kind of an Israel tree and he's grafting us non-Israelites into the people of God by faith. Now, that same passage, Romans 11, hints at the future for Israel, ethnic Israel. So there's a sense in which uh, it's crazy that Israel still exists. One of the most persecuted people groups that have ever lived, right? And so many of us believers, I believe this, that God still has a specific future in store for the nation of Israel. I don't pretend to fully understand it. I'm nervous about the people that have all the charts and think they know exactly what's going to happen. But I think something's going to happen. I think God's going to honor all the promises he made before to that ethnic people. But somehow that's got to be combined with the rule of faith. They are part of God's family by faith. And Paul's made that clear throughout Galatians, right? He said we're really sons of Abraham if we follow in his faith, not if we're genetically linked to him. It's by faith. So, I have a picture here. I was thinking about what this means to be an insider or an outsider. Uh, the Little Rock Nine were a group in history in 1957, I believe it was, that were integrating in a school, a high school in Little Rock. And I just, I don't know if you can see the lady in the back screaming at the young African-American girl that's, that's coming into this predominantly white school. Um, There's a lot of fighting that went on as integration happened in our history. 
because many people fall for the myth that I want, I want you to understand. Pretty much every tribe and every race has this myth. We all have this myth that my people are better than the other people. We all fall for it. And God says, no, my people, the people that matter, are the ones that trust me. That's what it means. The worldwide people of God are from every tongue and tribe and race. We just read that together today in the worship service in Revelation 9. That's the vision. That's the vision is people from every tongue and tribe and race and people. We're all united together by faith in Christ. So that's the rule. That's what makes us the people of God. Does that mean God's done with Israel and there's no future left for him? I don't think so. Like I would say, I would still think there's this future for Israel. But it's got to be linked to faith in Jesus as the real king. Got to be linked to that. Because that's the rule. Jesus, Jesus is the rule. We are integrated into the people of God by faith in what Jesus has done. Not by keeping external boundary markers. Not by saving ourselves, by following our own impulses. Well, as we wrap up, I just want to remind you again, um, there's, there's different ways that if, if you're caught in that situation where you don't think someone's paying attention to you, there's probably different ways that, that you try to grab people's attention, right? If you just think about it, but what are the ways that you try to grab people's attention? We all do it in different ways. We all run after God in different ways as well. In different ways, we all try to say, pay attention, look, look at me, value me, love me. And what Paul's saying here is, is this is the rule. Pay attention. Paul says, look at the big letters I'm writing. This is me writing. I've, I've taken the pen from the secretary. I'm now writing it with my own hand. Pay attention. It's only through the cross of Christ. It's only through the cross of Christ. Another way to say it, pay attention God paid attention to you first. We love because he first loved us. And so when we share in communion, when we sing worship songs to Jesus, even when we try to do what's right in our daily life, it's always a response. It's never our initiation. It's always a response to a God who says, pay attention, I love you. You, you failed me. You haven't lived up to everything I've made you for, but I love you anyway. And I sent my son Jesus to prove that. Let me pray for us and then we'll share in communion together. God, we thank you that you have told us to pay attention to your great love for us on the cross. And I pray that you would help us to trust you, to, to know this reality. Even as we take communion together today, Lord, we pray that this would become more and more real in our hearts. We thank you for bodily ways of responding to you through singing through the eating of bread and the drinking of the fruit of the vine. We, th- we thank you, Lord, that you give us these ways to, to enact, to embody that you're our very life, that we come to you because you loved us by dying on a cross to take our sins upon yourself and by rising from the dead to conquer sin and death once and for all. We pray that you would make this real and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.